need more strength. All right. Good evening, brothers and sisters. So good to be here in the warehouse with you. I think I come too rarely, but each time I've come, I see a few more people that I feel like I know, so I'm feeling a little bit more at home. Uh, for those of you who are just visiting, uh, I'm the senior pastor here at the Lake Avenue Church, uh, Greg Waybright. And sometimes when I show up here on Sunday night at the warehouse, it kind of feels like before I came here, I was in a school. I was the president of the school. And when I would show up at places, they called them sightings, president's sightings. <laughs> I, I don't think they meant that positively at all, but I took it positively because I keep thinking that unless there are occasional times that we can simply be with one another, this, this idea of the community can never happen even though it may not be as often as we might want to have it be. Now, this evening, I, I want to turn us to a, a text in the Bible that is, to me, one of the most important ones in terms of beginning my time here at the Lake Avenue Church. I, I've wrestled so long as, as I've tried to think about not just being a pastor of a church, but a true follower of Jesus. I've, I've wrestled so long with this issue. If you and I really believe in the kind of God that this Bible talks about, a God who's made everything, who is holy, and yet says that he wants to live in relationship with us. I've asked, what, what does that life look like if I live life in relationship with this powerful, perfect, holy God? And, and how can I ever understand what that looks like? Um, and I'm going to take us today to one of the most basic texts uh, that not only have followers of Jesus looked at it, but also Jewish rabbis have looked at it. It takes us all the way back into the Old Testament, uh, the time in which what are called the Ten Commandments were given. Uh, they were given in Exodus chapter 20, but then again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And in that, I, I find that the very basics for how we live, as you and I really have been made to live, are laid out for us. And I found that most people don't think about them that way. But I, I, I want to try to help us to think about them that way. So if you have your Bibles, I want to turn to that text. It's Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you have one of those Bibles that was passed out, it's right at the very beginning. And it's, uh, I think it's on page 124 if you have one of these that some of you I've seen have picked up. Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we're going to read just a couple of verses from that. And then I'm going to stop and talk with us for just a few moments about how to live life in relationship uh, personal relationship with God. All right, let's stand. I, I like to stand when we hear God's word and see if we can hear his voice. Uh, though it came originally so many centuries ago to his people of Israel, I think there are so many things here that transcend culture, transcend history, and speak to us this evening. Here's what happened. Moses summoned all of Israel, and he said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws that I declare in your hearing today. Learn them. Be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. And then at the end of that, verse 5, And he said, I am the Lord, your God, the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
And then on we read the Ten Commandments until we see why he's given them. And that takes us to verse 29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and with their children forever. And then down in verse 32. So, be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? So that you may live. So that you may prosper. So that you may prolong your days in the land that you possess. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Do any of you at the warehouse remember these? Been car- All right, I'm dating myself, but I'm telling you, Jeremy told me to go into YouTube, and one of the most watched videos is how to solve these things. It's called a Rubik's Cube, for those who don't know. And if it's the way it's supposed to be, you have the, and I'm not going to get it in that shape, though I'm guessing some of you can do it, uh, you'll have all one color on each one of the sides. And the goal of the game, and it came out in the very early 80s, was that you would sort of mess it up just a little bit, then you would hand it to someone and see how quickly they could get it back into alignment. Now, I, like so many in those days, became obsessed with these things. It just about took me to the brink of my insanity. It may have driven me over. You'll have to watch and see while I'm here as your pastor. But I remember the first time that I had gotten one was in the early 80s. Let me see. I was a doctoral student. I was a pastor, a relatively new husband, and a brand new father. So I, I only tell you that because this was a busy time. <laughs> this was a busy time of my life. And so what am I doing? I'm sitting in my office trying to figure out this crazy Rubik's Cube, just getting frustrated out of my mind. I just knew I could figure out this thing somehow until an 11-year-old guy in our church named Mike came in and peeked his head in. Now, Mike was a terrible student. And he was always in trouble everywhere that he went. But for some reason, I don't know why, he and I really connected with one another. We we enjoyed one another. So anytime his mom or dad came to church, he stopped by to see me. And he peeked his head in. He said, oh, Pastor Greg, I see you have a Rubik's Cube. Uh, Do you mind if I try it? I said, well, it's hard. But here, go ahead and try it. You're ahead of me on this. You know what happened. He took that thing. And I tell you, I, I know it was under two minutes. It may have been under one minute. Whip, 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 whip. And there it was. Perfect. Perfect in alignment. Mike, I said, how on earth did you do that? Oh, it's easy, he told me, if you're smart. (sighs) 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 Then he flipped it back to me and, and said, as he walked out the door, and if you have the book, and out he went, Mike, get back in here. The book. What are you talking about the book? He said, sure. The company that made these Rubik's Cubes also puts out a book. And it's so simple, he says. It gives you the way, no matter how much out of alignment it is, it gives you the way that you can get it back into order. No matter where you find it, it can get back to that order, that symmetry, that beauty again. It's easy, he said, if you have the book. Then as he was leaving, I said, well, trying to get back a little bit of my self-respect. Uh, I think I'd rather try to figure it out myself. <laughs> he 
And he looked at me with that look. He looked at me with that look. Sure you would. And I knew I wasn't speaking the truth any more than he knew that I wasn't speaking the truth. Well, I, I thought of this. I was thinking of an illustration all through the past few weeks as I knew this series that I'm calling The Maker's Instructions is coming up. And I tried to think about something that would illustrate what I want to talk to you about. It seems to me that, not, though not perfect, it's a good illustration. Because in so many ways, it seems to me that this Rubik's Cube is a lot like the lives that you and I lead, that all of us lead. I mean, it has so many decisions, so many twists to it that we sometimes don't expect, so many permutations. Sometimes we'll make a decision that we know is wrong and that gets us into trouble, and our lives are out of alignment and out of order. And then we try to figure out how to make it right again. This is right. Am I the only one who... It's like David in the Old Testament when he made that horrible mistake of staying home instead of going to war and then saw Bathsheba and entered into that wrong relationship of adultery with her and then tried to make all these decisions. I've got to clear it up. I've got to cover it up. I've got to make it right. But every decision he made didn't make it right. It just messed it up more until it eventually led to him being involved in homicide the murder of another man. In some ways, the same thing was true when you work these things. Uh, if you've ever tried it, you, you get it so that you seem to have several colors, but every time you get that color back on this, you mess up this side even more. What seems to be the right way to go ends up being the wrong way to go. Now, I, I, I tell you, when it comes to doing a game, sometimes this matter of just hit and miss and trial and error and all these things might be okay, but life... Life isn't like that. So you, God has only given us, in this realm, one life to live. And the thing that I am convinced of is that the maker of human life has given us a book. And in this book, this, this is the essence of the Christian faith. God makes himself known to us. He tells us what he is like. And he's given us guidelines here telling us how we should live. Now you know that even though always, I mean, for, for centuries, people have questioned whether we should follow these guidelines or not, the fact is that nowadays, more people than ever before are saying, no, I don't want to have any external authority telling me how to live. Some people say, when it comes to my life, I'd rather, kind of like I said, figure it out myself. Philosophers have called them rationalists. Uh, some have said, no, 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 I'd rather just try it by uh, trial and error, just see if it works, let's try this and that. They're called uh, pragmatists. And there are a whole other group that says, well, there's never really any order, any external order that, that, that should be maintained in our lives. The world is just the way we want it to be. It's, it's absurd, Yahoo. They are called the existentialists. Uh, together, these very simplistic definitions, but these three groups form the three major thought groups that try to live life without any reference to God whatsoever. But one of the things I've become convinced of over the years is this, that even though it didn't cost me very much to try to figure it out myself when it came to doing a game, when it comes to my life, uh, the mistakes I make are too personal, right? When I go the wrong direction, it's just so painful. Uh, and, the, and the loss, the loss so often is the relationships. The loss, at the end of the day, may be of our very souls. 
and of our eternal destinies. You see, but the Maker has given us a book telling us how to live. And when we come together and ask, how does it start? Fundamentally, at the, at the very basic parts of his revelation to us, we find what are called the Ten Commandments. They're found in those two places that I mentioned. God's instruction for how we are to live. Now, I know that many people don't want to read those. They say they are old. They say the commandments, rules, they are simply there to box us in. But I want you to see why God has given us those. I think we have them here. In chapter 5, verse 29 of Deuteronomy. It's a verse I love so much, and I want you to see it. Do we have that? Yes. Here's what God says after giving these commands. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep my commands always. Why? Look at this phrase. So that it would go well with them and their children forever. See, according to the Bible, the commands were not given us to put us into a box and keep us from living, but given to us so that you and I could learn how we were created to live. Uh, Similar to when you buy a car and you get the owner's manual and it tells you what you need to do so that it runs well, that you should put gasoline in it rather than than water, even though water is cheaper, because it will run better. So too, God has created us and made us to live and told us, if you live this way, then it will go well with you. And after you're gone and, and people meet in the warehouse in the 21st century, if, it will go well with them too, if they will hear my word. Now, one other thing, just before I ask three simple questions. Um, so many people today say the Ten Commandments, these, these commands and rules, that's just in the Old Testament. But you know that Jesus came to teach a different way. Uh, Jesus, when asked what the great commands were, remember he said there are two. Do you know what they are? Number one, we are to love God with all of our beings. And number two, we are to love other people, those God brings across our paths, love others as we love ourselves. Love God and love people. And so people say, we don't have to read these anymore. We just have to love. That's all that God expects of us. But no, no, no. You need to understand that when Jesus talked about the two great commandments, he was talking about this. Love God is referring back to the first part of the Ten Commandments, which are all about how we show love to God. Loving other people is all the second part of the Ten Commandments, which are all about how you and I live lives of love in community with one another. And so I have been thinking about this for a long time. If if I care about the people of this church and long for you to live well, I want to come back and look at this. Because God has said, if you will fear me and keep my commands, it will go well with you. This is how life is to be lived. Do you believe me? Well, even if not, let's think with me and stick with me here for just a few moments. I'm going to ask three questions tonight, three simple questions. The first one, if I'd been doing this message 20 or 30 years ago, I wouldn't have asked it. But now that I'm living in the 21st century, I have to ask it. And here's the question. What is it that makes one decision wrong and another decision right? What is it in this world that makes one decision good and another decision not so good? And this is what the Bible says in chapter 5, verse 4. It comes from this, that the Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain, and he said, this is how I've made you to live. 
These are my commands. In other words, for a Christian, what makes one thing right and another thing wrong is a God who is and who speaks. And if you're with me, a God who is and has made himself known, a God who is all-powerful and the maker of all things, a God who's not only powerful but good, so good that when he described himself to Moses, I am the gracious, compassionate, Exodus 33, God ready to forgive, willing to forgive. This is the kind of God that he is. And a good, powerful God who made you and me. He made us in his image. That's what the Bible says. And it's hard to understand what that is. But it must mean this, that God made us to be something like he is. And when he gives us commands... He's telling us how he's created people in his image to live life well. Now, if you're still sticking with me here, think about it. Aren't there so many things that affect our decisions? Uh, Sometimes you make a decision simply out of habit, don't you? Uh, Well, I think I'll show up at the warehouse this Sunday. That's what I usually do on a Sunday night, just, just out of habit. And once you come in, you walk in and you say, some decisions are made just randomly. Oh, here's an open seat. Well, I'll sit in the second row. Uh, Just a random decision. Sometimes they're made out of what we think is is, is convenient or might be most expedient for us. I think, looks like we might have a few students here. Uh, I think I'd, I'd like to study business instead of Sanskrit. I've heard there are more jobs in, in business. You just, you just make it on something that will help you to be more successful. So many things affect the way you and I make decisions. But, but, I am convinced, because almost every person I've ever spoken to appeals to this, that there are times when decisions come in our lives when we say, yes, I usually do this, or, well, I'd like to do this, Or, I would be more successful if I did this, but I know that I ought to do that. You know you've experienced that. A time when a decision that you would make you know will negatively affect somebody you care about, and even though so many of your personal inclinations would drive you this way, you come and you know deep down inside, I, and this this word, ought, to do that. It means it would be better, it would be good if I did that, in spite of the fact that many other factors may call me in this direction. Don't you think it's a a strong, strange word, this word ought? What it implies is this. If you ever use it, it implies that there is some standard of goodness outside of yourself that will trump other bases for making a decision. It's a word which I've heard Christians and non-Christians alike use. Before I became the pastor here, I was constantly traveling around to different universities and speaking at campus groups. And I would get into discussion about this, and this issue always came up. And at the end of the day, those who rejected any notion of oughtness, something that is right, something that is good, would appeal to it to try to convince me that their argument is better. You ought to believe what I believe. Well, why ought I, I would ask. You ought to do this in any time we make a decision that it's better to love than to hate. It's better than to protect than to destroy. 
we're appealing to some moral law, some standard outside of ourselves. Do you see that? And the Bible says it comes from a God who has made us and as a moral God has created this world in a way that if we live His way, it will be good and it can be beautiful. Now, the reason why I bring up this question now in the 21st century is that whereas 20 or 30 years ago, I could have spoken even to a, 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 certainly to a, a, a group that meets in a church and everyone would have agreed. I know that that's no longer the case. Because this notion of a standard outside of ourselves has come under attack. It's come under attack really for two reasons. Some say that no such thing exists. It's one of the keynotes of postmodern thinking, supposedly. Supposedly it is. In fact, when I was a college student, I was a philosophy major, and one of the books that I read is by a man named J.L. Mackay. He's sort of the uh, great-grandfather of the postmodern movement, a professor in England, and the title of the book is telling. It's this, Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. That's quite a, you know what the book is about, don't you? Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. And essentially what, uh, the book begins with, there are no absolute moral values. That's the opening sentence. And essentially his argument is this, if there were absolute values, if there was goodness, that should compel us to do what is good, that would mean we would also have to have some strange, and this is his word, strange intuition in ourselves that would make us sense that we ought to be good. And he couldn't imagine that. But of course, that's the very thing that the Bible says, that God making us in his image. You see, this is this, is this Christian worldview, that, that Christians really are the ultimate humanists because we have this high value. God has made us to be something like himself, and a part of that is he's built this intuition, some will call it a conscience within us, that knows that there is a good and knows there is an evil. But there are so many people who say it doesn't exist. In fact, I tried to think of, I jotted it down, what happens in so many uh, universities is that you go from one class to another where this whole notion of a moral law is being undermined. You go, for example, to a physical science class, and this is essentially what will be taught. Human beings, there's nothing sacred about human life. Have you ever read Peter Singer from Princeton? All right. You should, well, I don't know if I want you to. Read the Bible alongside of it. There are, uh, human beings, there's nothing sacred about human life because we're just chemical machines. Chemicals responding to the other chemicals in the environment. There are no moral laws. There are just physical laws. So you go out of physical science class and you go into biology class. And the biologist says, yes, yes, we all know that human behavior can be interpreted in terms of animal instincts. That's what directs us and guides us. Things like aggression and territorial defense. We're just developed animals who developed instincts like all other parts of this world. And then you leave biology class and you go to the anthropology class. And the anthropologist says, well, of course they're right. Uh, people who show up at Lake Avenue Church believe that certain things are right and wrong because you listen to that preacher all the time. It's, it's socially conditioned. But if you grew up in a different kind of a place, oh, what, uh, among Melanesian frog worshippers or you know, something, then you would feel altogether different about it. You would have a whole different set of rights and wrongs. Now, I could go on and on, and you know that. But whenever you go into a place where in our culture and in our world, 
so many of the most educated are undermining any notion of a moral law, you can see why it is that when a pastor gets up on a, a time like this and says, there's a way you and I have been made to live, I've got to address this. Because the response of the Bible essentially is this. God has spoken. God has made you and me. He has put within us something that is like himself, that is moral and can understand when we go astray and get our lives out of kilter. I am guessing that if if we were really honest, and and you were a whole lot more transparent than I am, uh, I like to admit anything but weakness. That's that's always so hard. But if but if I could be more transparent than I am, I would tell you what what I think you could tell me, that there are places in our lives that we know are out of order. So that there must be some notion of something good that exists. Now there are some people who will say, okay, I agree that there must be some standard of goodness. But the second way that this notion has been under attack is that even those who say that there may be some moral law say, I'm not sure it's good. Even if God has said, this is the way I want you to live, many people wonder whether his way, living God's way, is really a good way to live. Um, any of you ever listen to R&B music? Do any of you remember the old stuff, classical stuff? David, I'm going to look over here at you. Uh, Luther Ingram, remember, remember the old song, Oh, man, the the people in the morning service, they knew this. If loving you is wrong, I don't... Aha! Got an old guy like me. No, not that old. Much younger, much younger. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Do you know what that implies, don't you? That implies even if there is some standard that tells me that God would say, I want you to be faithful in your relationship to your spouse. Uh, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right because that's not real living. That's going to squelch the way I want to live. Now, if you'll take that and expand it, we could say that about a thousand things for a person who owns a business. If treating my employees fair and paying them appropriately is right, I don't want to be right because I won't get ahead. Uh, Sometimes in a relationship, if telling you the truth is right, then I don't want to be right. Uh, we begin to question whether the moral law is good, whether what God asks us to do. Have you ever wondered that? You come to church and you hear a, a preacher like me talking to you about how God has made you to live, and you think, if I lived that way, there'd be no joy in this at all. And of course, in, in the society we live in, if you watch the movies that are being made now and read the books that are being written now, you know that the, the kind of people that really are heroes uh, are, have to be a bit, a, a bit of a rogue, you know? You have to push the envelope a little bit or you're not really living. Back back generations ago, we had shows like Andy Griffiths and Mr. Rogers. I mean, who on earth wants to be like that anymore? What what has sort of dominated our way of thinking is the Hugh Hefner philosophy that, that says this. If you tell me what I'm doing is wrong, you're the one that has a problem. You're the one who is inhibited. So on one side, there are some people who say there is no moral law, and then there are so many of us who will come and say, even if God has said this is how you should live, I don't think that that's good living. I'm not sure I want to live there. Let me try something on you. I think we have this here, don't we? At, at uh, Columbia University, back a number of years ago, a sociologist tried an experiment. He noticed that the values that he'd grown up with, and this wasn't a Christian man, but the values he'd grown up with, he, he felt had changed 
and were no longer valued by the students that he had. So he just walked into class, and on the projector that was overhead, he started putting certain words. I can't, there they are. Okay. He kept his back to the audience. Goodness. Kindness. Purity. Chastity. Virtue. Integrity. Faithfulness. And he kept writing. Uh, In his report on this, he said, after about the third or fourth words, especially with this purity and chastity, he could sense the people snickering behind him, a sense of discomfort behind him. By the time he got to the sixth, seventh, eighth, and it went on for about 12 or 13 words, the students started talking with one another, a very, very strong feeling of discomfort. And he said, stop! What's going on here? Why are you responding simply because these words are up there? And one of the young men said, these are, you can't be serious. These aren't the kinds of things we think about in our school. And a young woman said, quite frankly, seeing those words made me uncomfortable. Now, all of this just helps us to see that God comes, and you, you come to church and the pastor stands and says, there's a way God has created your life to be lived. And if you live his way, it's good and it's beautiful. Uh, But our society is telling us, no, if you live that way, it's going to ruin your life. That can't be the way to live life well. And the question is whether we're going to be able to learn to trust that the maker who has made us also tells us how truly we can live. Which brings me to my second question. And this will just be brief, but I think it's an important one also. And that question is this. All right, if there is a way that God has created you and me to, be, to live. What on earth is going to motivate us to live his way rather than my own? Because we're going to have all these other things tugging us away, right? And then we come to church and the Bible says, God says, this is how I want you to live. What's going to motivate you and me to live his way? Now, now throughout the, the generations, different religions, people have said, well, of course, if there is a God that you have to stand before, you'd better do it his way or else. But I want to show you that that is not the main motivation for living life for God. And here it is. I love this. Verse 6. It's a a verse that when most people read the Ten Commandments, they just skip through it. But look at it. God says, I am the Lord, your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who rescued you from slavery. And I've rescued you so that you can live now This is how truly to live. I didn't rescue you from slavery to ruin your life. I rescued you so that you can live. And the question is whether we're thankful for that rescue so much that we'll say, all right, I know I've messed my own life up, so I will live your way and trust you. And especially now that we come to the New Testament, the rescue is even bigger The Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the one who came to give my life in your place. I I love you so much that I died on the cross so that you can be forgiven. Do we really think that Jesus would be so foolish as to give his life to ruin ours? He gave his life so that if we'll trust him and live for him, at last we will have, as he called it, 
abundant life, life to the full. Now, I don't know if, if many of you are long-time church. I know we have some Florida students here, but for those of you who have been long-time churchgoers, you'll know about this. Those of you who aren't, there has been a, a struggle among churchgoers for centuries about this relationship of faith in God and works. Faith in God and what role our changed life should play. Uh, Some people will say there's even a contradiction in the Bible. They'll say the Apostle Paul told us to simply trust in him for salvation. And then you read the book of James and it tells you, no, 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 faith without works is dead. You also have to work. So on one side, some people say, well, here's how you come to know God's rescue. Uh, Yes, you've got to trust Jesus, but also here's this checklist. Do this and this and this and this and this or else you won't be rescued in God's family. And now what does the Bible say about this? Absolutely not. For, for by grace, an unmerited gift, you've been rescued. It's not of yourselves. It's, it's a gift from God. It's not of our works, in case any of us should boast. Throughout heaven, we're not going to be boasting, oh, I know that other people made it here, but isn't God happy that I'm here because I was such a good person? It's simply not a part of it. On the other side, some people who've read that have said, oh, then, then works make no difference. Then all I have to believe, do is believe on Jesus... And then I can live as I want. As if Jesus rescued us from our sins so that we could continue on in them. Now the way to understand this, both in the Old Testament and in the New, is that the Christian faith is different from other religions. It is not us earning our way to God. It is us responding to what He has done. Do you see it? Verse 6. I am the Lord who is in relationship with you. And you know what I've done. I've rescued you out of slavery. Now in grateful response, here's how you live. And, and the same thing is true in the New Testament. Jesus, if you love me, keep my commands. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, in view of the mercy of God that he has shown to you, offer all that you are to him. Now mark it down. And I, I think I've talked to you about this before. Probably many times when you hear me, because this is, is so basic to what Christianity is all about. The most effective motivation for us to live for God rather than for us, to live His way rather than our own, is this. Gratitude for what He's done. Deep gratitude for what He's done. A willingness to look in the mirror and say, I know that I messed up my life. I can't believe God would ever receive me. That we come to him and say, here is my life. Are you ready to take it? And he said, those things that are wrong, I'll take them and I'll cast them as far as east is from the west. I will remember them no more. Here is my life. Now this is how you should live. What would motivate you and me? It's going to be how deeply we are grateful for what God has done for us in Christ. Which brings me to the third question. And it is this, and it brings us to the first command. And that is, if we are grateful for what God's done, and we know that our lives are out of kilter, where do I start? Where do I start to get it right? And fundamentally, this is where it begins. You shall have no other gods before me. Fundamentally, it is letting God be God 
in our lives. That phrase, before me, literally means to the face of. Don't you, don't you think that's a powerful image? To the face of. Don't have anything to the face of God. Nothing that is an offense to him. Nothing that is on the same plane as he is. God in his first place. Everything else under him. When God is in his rightful place, other things can take their rightful places and you and I can begin to live. Now, our time is about gone, so I just wrote down a couple of statements I want to make to you that might help with this. A thesis number one. The only thing that makes it possible, according to the Bible, to live well, is if you and I will put God in his rightful place in our lives. Actually, all the other commands start here. My life is yours, God. I want you to be the God, the Lord of my life. And when we put him in his rightful place, then everything else in this world, uh, our occupations, our families, our relationships, can take their rightful places. Now, uh, in the 80s, I was a pastor up on the Central Coast in a little town called Arroyo Grande. Do you know where that is? It's such, such a beautiful place, up by San Luis Obispo. And for two and a half years... I had a Bible study every Wednesday morning with 12 physicians. Uh, one of them, a surgeon, would pick me up in Arroyo Grande and we would drive up to San Luis Obispo and talk as we went and talk all the way back. This physician, he's a surgeon, had five beautiful, blonde, teenage daughters. And one or all of them was always in trouble. So I, he would pick me up and I would hop into his car and I would say, who do you want to talk about today, Bill? And he said, I think I'll talk about, and I won't use the names, I'll talk about it. And then on and on he would go all the way up. And then after the Bible study, all the way back, we would talk about the situation again. And he ended the discussion every time with this phrase. Bottom line, pastor, he would say, it's a spiritual problem. She needs to put God first in her life. I bet that he had said that a 10,000 times to those daughters, and I bet it drove them nuts. Let me tell you that over the years I have come to see that that is right. When our lives get all out of kilter, if you go onto YouTube and see it, if you get the book, and there, there are certain ways where you start. And the starting point is to put God at the first place in our lives. One of my favorite authors is a man named George MacDonald, uh, 19th century, a Scottish author. Uh, he was a pastor and he preached the truth so much that they kept reducing his salary. <laughs> he had about 22 kids. They kept, but I love reading his books. And there's a phrase that he uses. I, almost every wedding I've ever done, I use this phrase, and I love it. I, I want you to perhaps even mark it down. He has written that when first things are put first, second things are not diminished, but enhanced. What do you think of that? Think about it again. When first things are put first, second things are not diminished, but enhanced. I, I would use this phrase because sometimes when people would come from outside the church into the weddings that I would do, and I would always talk about putting God first in their relationship, there would always be the sense, wait a minute, I've heard them, I've come here to hear them pledge their love to one another, and what you've talked about is a first love for God. And my point is, their marriage will be better if the first thing is first. First. 
when first things are first, second things are not going to be harmed. They're going to benefit. And so I am so convinced that when we learn somehow to put God first in our lives, that's when the other pieces begin to fit. Which brings me to my second thesis and my last one. Whatever controls you is your God. Whatever controls you is what has become your God. And it's only when God is our God that we can ever really be free of the control of so many other things, of addictions, of expectations that we can't live up to. It's only when we fear God and want to please Him more than anything else that we have nothing in this world to fear. I want you to listen to the words of Becky Pippert. Years ago, she wrote this book, um, Out of the Salt Shaker, Into the World. Listen to this phrase. I, I think it's, it's, it's wise. Whatever controls us, she wrote, that is our Lord. Uh, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. I know that's true. Having been in positions of authority, I know how hard it is to take hands off of that. And, and if our longing of our life is to hold on to power or to gain it, then we'll do anything to keep that power. It becomes our God. We become obsessed by it. Or she said, the one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. If we just want to be liked, then we'll do almost anything and say almost anything to be liked, whether it is true or not. We do not control ourselves, Becky said. We are going to be controlled by what is the Lord of our lives, what we put to the face of God. Now, what are those things that we could put to the face of God? J.I. Packer, the British theologian, he said God is the one who's to be at first in our lives is three in one, a trinity. And he says that there are trinities of other gods in the world that we live in. I think these are good. Think about them with regard to your life. The first trinity is sex, Shekels, stomach. Second, pleasure, position, possessions. Or this one, football, the firm, the family. The thing I want you to see is these things that we can put to the face of God are all good things in their rightful place. They're all good things. But if we put those into the points that we put above God, they'll never satisfy. Even good things like our family or our marriages, if we expect them to be God, they'll always let us down. Isn't that true? Because we can't be perfect to one another. It's a point that we need to make so often in marriage relationships. If we expect that other person to be God, they have to let us down because they're not yet perfect. But if we can put God in his rightful place, we can allow that other person to become the person that God would have them to be. Other things here, if we put them in God's place, become addictions for us. For example, this matter of pleasure. You know, those things that we enjoy so much because they're so immediate after we've enjoyed them for a while, they don't satisfy the same way anymore, do they? And we have to have even more. And we become obsessed by them, sometimes addicted to them. But pleasure with God in his rightful place 
becomes one of the most beautiful parts of this world. Now I want to ask you, do you know of anybody whose life is one of those works of beauty? I long, I long to become that. I long to become the kind of person that Jesus talks about, that people will see you, but in seeing you they'll know that God is there and give glory and praise to him. But this last week, if you've been following the news, have you, have you followed the life, the funeral of Randall Simmons, the L.A. police officer, the SWAT officer who was killed? Here's a man that we'd never heard of before, and now thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to his funeral. He, he was not only a SWAT officer, but a minister of the gospel. And the testimonies that were given of his life were, were, were testimonies of a life of beauty, whether they came from his friends or his families or his colleagues. And I went on to the L.A. Times. Here, I wrote it down. I hope I can read my writing. I went on to the L.A. Times this morning to see what people were writing about him. And here's one of the things that the L.A. Times said from his funeral service. It is of note that this dedicated man's first dedication was to his God. Let me say that again. It is of note that this dedicated man's first dedication was to his God. And because God was first in his life, it changed the way he saw and treated people. It changed the way that he worked with his colleagues. It changed the way he dealt with his family. And I tell you, it was a life that was lived well. And this evening we've simply begun this series. And and my call to you as your pastor is this. I know that there are so many times when the twists, the changes, and the permutations, the decisions we make, we come here and we just know this is not the way that I was meant to live. Right? I call upon you to surrender what has come into God's place back to him and to let God be God. Give all that you are Give all that you have to him, and that that is the beginning of living well Ah, to his glory. Amen. I want to lead us in just a few moments of reflection and prayer at the close of our time here at the warehouse.